was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubby Hole, episode number six. This is the podcast in which we wax lyrical, wax philosophical, and, well, just wax on about one of the best characters ever created, James Bond 007. As always, we appreciate your company, and do let us know if the feeling is mutual by heading over to our social media pages and giving us a like and follow on Facebook and Instagram. Just type in our name and you'll be able to find us. Or on Twitter, we use the slightly shorter handle of More Cubby. Also, you can get in touch with the show by email, Roger Moore's Cubby Hole, all one word, no apostrophe, at gmail.com if there are any topics or issues you think we should cover in future episodes. One final note, if you are enjoying the show so far, which we certainly hope you are, do consider giving us a review on whichever podcasting app or website you use. Uh, That'd be very lovely indeed. Five stars would always be welcome, but uh, never expected. Uh, Although I guess if if your podcast app is out of 10, uh, then that would be quite an average rating. But uh, whatever you you feel we deserve, uh, we'll quite happily receive. And uh, in your review, maybe following on from Phil's faux pas in our previous episode, uh, if you can let us know, maybe at the, the end of your review, uh, let us know which Bond character your partner would be and the reason why. Now, in the last episode, we completed Sean Connery's initial run of five Bond films with You Only Live Twice. And we had a good time talking about the extravagant nature of the storyline, the set designs, and of course the characters, although we did have some differing views on the villain and some of the female characters. So a change of tack completely with this film, number six on Her Majesty's Secret Service. George Lazenby's one and only outing as James Bond. So with me to discuss it, we have our usual hosting team, Firstly, I have all the time in the world for this man, uh, which is useful when I'm editing his car monologues. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Yes, I'm very well, thank you, Martin. Um, We're actually unseasonally in a lot of nice sunshine up here in Scotland, so I'm uh, enjoying the warmer weather. Really looking forward to watching on Her Majesty's and chatting to you um, some of the really good points um, and kind of revisiting one of the films that I've um, I've not watched as much in the franchise. So really looking forward to it. And as Martin mentioned with our social media, we'd also like to do a shout out to Gmarney1966 on Twitter, who has sent us some really positive feedback. Of course, if you would like a shout out on the show, we're always willing to um, to give you a little mention uh, if there is anything you do want to say. Okay, thanks, Phil. And secondly, he'll only eat caviar if they're Royal Beluga, north of the Caspian. It's Count de Hollyshamps. It's Adam. Uh, how's it going, Adam? And I believe we have a special guest today. It's going very well. Thanks for acknowledging my expensive taste in caviar and all things gastronomical. And yes, we do. This is a very special and unique film in the Bond franchise. And so this is a very special and unique episode. I brought along my very good friend, Nicholas Broadstock, uh, an editor by trade. Uh, very appropriate for the film directed by the editor of the previous Bond films, and he's going to join us for the chat. So, Nick, uh, please introduce yourself. 
Thanks, Adam, and thanks, guys, for having me on. Yeah, uh, I'm Nick, so I'm a, I'm a film buff, as, as Adam says, I uh, work in film editing, and I'm a very big Bond enthusiast, so I'll be looking at the, the film from the angle of behind the scenes and the, the filmmaking. Yeah, mine and Phil, watch out. Phil's, uh, not Phil's, Nick's film knowledge is vastly superior to my own, so he's really going to be going in on that. Uh, Nick, we've all, in our Doctor No episode, talked about our first experiences of the Bond franchise. What was your introduction to it, out of interest? It's hard to remember, to be honest, because it's so early on. So that's, I think, trying to remember back, I may have been introduced by an animated show nobody else remembers called James Bond Jr. about... James Bond's American nephew, which Adam teaming up with the son of Felix Leiter and various other strange tangent connections. But yeah, I think that may have, that was when I was three or four that was on television. So I kind of got into Bond very early on. And I know by the time Goldeneye came out, I was completely uh, uh, obsessed perhaps and tried to get into the cinema but obviously as it was rated 12 and I was seven years old it it didn't happen. I got a bit of stick from my fiance when I revealed I was about seven or eight when I first saw a Bond film the fact that you got in there at three or four she's going to be ringing your parents up to see what was going on. Yeah they're quite a different experience when you're watching them that young I think. I think a lot of it would go over your head at that age uh, well welcome to the show Nick look forward to having you with us. Yeah good to have you on board Nick. Okay, so firstly, we'll head over to Adam and Alan Partridge for the synopsis of the film. So, yeah, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, the sixth James Bond film based on the 11th James Bond book. Peter Hunt, who edited the previous five Bond films and directed the second unit on You Only Live Twice, so he'd have been behind all those action scenes we were waxing lyrical about last week. He steps into the director's chair for this one for the first and only time in the series. And also his first and only James Bond film is, of course, George Lazenby taking over the role from Sean Connery. Uh, this was released in December 1969, so still 19 years before Pierce Brosnan's breakout performance in the action classic Taffin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! This was made on a slightly lower budget than the previous two Bond films. This was made for $7 million and it goes on to gross $82 million. So whilst it's still one of the 10 highest grossing films of the year, it's quite some way off uh, what uh, Thunderball and You Only Live Twice grossed. So in the context of the series, it was not as successful a film. And very few contemporary critics liked it. A lot of their ire was reserved for George Lazenby's performance. Since then, it's probably been the most reassessed of the Bond films. Bond fans, film critics, and indeed film directors, most notably Christopher Nolan, have all cited this as one-off, if not their very favourite Bond films. So now, to learn what actually happens in this one, it's over to Alan. We're looking down the barrel of a gun at George Lazenby, the Aussie Turkish delight man. Bang! Blood dribbles down. Bond bombs it down a beach Dominic Cummings style to save the exquisite Countess Tracy from suicide. G'day mate, my name's James Bloody Bond mate. But while he Baywatch bashes two thugs, she escapes and leaves her shoes behind. This never ended the other bloody fella. Roll titles, Union Jacks, John Barry's best instrumental, loads of silhouetted nipples. Tracy's checked into Bond's swanky hotel, where he loses money on her dodgy gambling, goes Keith Moon on her bedroom, down some unaffordable champagne and caviar, and has a night of passion with her on a very unprivate balcony bed. In the morning, her dad, Draco Malfoy, makes Bond an offer. My child is wayward. What she needs is a man to dominate her. I'll give you one million pounds to marry my daughter. 
Money Penny blanks Bond a fortnight off from swanning round the Riviera so he doesn't have to resign, and Bond and Tracy fall in love to a romantic montage of horse riding and garden strolls. Bond steals documents and a Playboy centerfold during a dodgy Swiss lawyer's lunch hour on Draco's advice, and learns that Bloody Blofeld's running a private allergy clinic in the Swiss Alps, disguised as Sir Hilary Bray from the Royal College of Arms. Bond goes to the clinic to see if Blofeld's a German count, yes, that's count, and meets a literal harem of hot ladies with weird allergies. Blowers catches Bond when he starts running round all the girls' bedrooms showing off his book of golden balls, and reveals his latest villainous plot. My angels of death will release virus omega, able to render entire species sterile and cause global pandemics. It's uncomfortably topical. Bond barely escapes to the village in a one-legged ski battle, where Tracy rescues him, winning an ice car derby in the process. He's so smitten, he does the unthinkable. I bloody love you. I'll never find anyone else like you. Will you bloody marry me? But in the morning, Blowers captures her in an avalanche, so Bond goes and gets her dad Draco to help rescue her. While Tracy distracts Blowers with her poetic flirting, by dawn, O oh master of the world, by dawn. Bond and her dad blow the clinic to smithereens, and Bond breaks Blower's neck on a Cool Runnings bobsleigh run before cuddling a lovely big St. Bernard. Bond and Tracy have a gorgeous wedding. He tells Draco to stick his million quid where the sun don't shine. Tells Q, this time I've got the bloody gadgets, and I know how to use them. A heartbroken Moneypenny catches his hat, and they drive off into the sunset. But at a roadside, shots are fired, and Bond's left cradling, helplessly, his murdered bride. It's all right. It's quite all right, really. He's having a rest. We'll be going on soon. There's no hurry, you see. We have all the time in the world. Thank you very much, Adam and Alan. So uh, this one, obviously a very different film to the other Bond films in the franchise, if only because of the the main actor, George Lazenby. Um, where should we start then? Should we? I thought maybe we should start right at the beginning of the film. What were our initial impressions? I, I guess when we were all watching it as youngsters, we'd already seen Connery as Bond by the time we then watch on Her Majesty's. Uh, what did we think to that opening scene? My feelings were that it was a really cinematic beginning. I was really impressed with the way they filmed those opening shots, but then perhaps ruined by the fourth wall break at the end where he looks directly into the camera. What were your thoughts? Maybe over to Nick first. What, uh, what did you think about that opening? Yeah, I think the opening is, yeah, as you say, it's very cinematic, the way they conceal his face. They're kind of trying to build the new actor, Lazenby, as Bond. You know, when we're so familiar now, you know, with Sean Connery. And yeah, they didn't want to show his face until like it's a full it's a full shot and he's he's rescued the girl. I think yeah, I, I really like it. Yeah, it's the the cinematic way that Hunt has tried to introduce Lazenby. It it sets a trend for the film. I like the fourth wall break. I think it's it's kind of at the time it was unusual to change the actor like this when it had been so recently played by someone else. It's kind of confronting the obvious that Sean Connery was so iconic and we, we've changed it. And the, it sets it off as a different Bond film because that didn't happen to the other film. Yeah, I do like it as well, because I think you can potentially read that fourth wall break in a couple of ways. The fact that Tracy's left both of her shoes behind, I always read it potentially as a Cinderella reference as well. The fact that it's almost his glass slipper moment and it sets us up 
in a sort of weird quasi fairy tale way for the fact that this is the girl for him, as it turns out. This is his one true love. And like Cinderella has left her shoes behind. So obviously he's riffing on, he's replaced Connery. But also I think there's that way of, of reading it as well. I guess it's worth saying very early on, on the way those opening scenes are directed, that Peter Hunt came to the director's chair with an absolute desire to auteur this film, to give it a real distinctive visual flair that short of perhaps Terence Young had never really been put on them before, but he goes way beyond that and really crafts a film that is in a unique style visually in a way that no one does again until probably Sam Mendes when he comes to direct uh, Skyfall and Spectre. And part of that is just the unique framings of those opening scenes as well. When we focus in on the cigarette in the car, there's just a little camera pan movement up and then a zoom into the cigarette with John Barry's music going on. Uh, the fact that the camera is stationed in the back of the car instead of full on from the front so that we can see Bond's face. So he's kind of in shadow. We don't really know what we feel about this new Bond yet. And then, of course, um, using the zooms in the fight scene as well. He's employing, again, that fast-cutting style, but he's making the framing of his individual shots as interesting and as stylish as possible, so that when everything's put together, it has even more zip and bang than those sequences had had previously. Yeah, I'd agree, Adam. I think it's, in terms of, as we've mentioned, in terms of the way it's all stylized, it is a very different setup to the kind of the Connery films that went before, but I think that does it to its credit, because... I think if they tried to have gone down the same route of keeping it in the same style as Terence Young or Guy Hamilton, it may have lost some of its magic because when I went back to this film, I, I sort of, I actually worked out this is probably the Bond film that I've seen the fewest number of times. So it was actually quite a joy to watch it again. You know, I'm normally sort of horridly writing notes down when I'm watching the film because I've seen them so many times. But with this one, it was kind of a case of just wanting to watch and savour it, as you say, because of the cinematography and because of the way that it's it's been designed from the very start. I mean, obviously, the opening credits are perhaps a little bit of a hark back to, to Connery's era. Also, we see the um, the run through also the, the previous films. But I think, again, that helps to kind of move it along. Obviously, you're aware that Connery is no longer Bond and it's, you know, there is this this kind of movement away from what we've had before. And I think it's important that, that that opening sequence tries to distinguish what has come before it. Yeah, I think I really enjoyed that opening sequence because that nicely, it's a kind of a seamless entry, in, isn't it, into this film from the Connery era into Lazenby. So I guess that's, I get your points about the fourth wall break uh, could be seen as quite good, uh, but I think it wasn't really necessary because they had that opening sequence with the the images of the, uh, the previous films. Uh, and in a way it kind of reminded, I thought I was getting into the film and then suddenly the fourth wall break, and then I'm suddenly reminded, oh yeah, you're not Connery. So that's, I think that's the reason I didn't like it. Uh, but I can see, I can see the other side uh, as well. Should we put cards on the table first? Because Phil and Martin, I know that you haven't seen this film perhaps as much as the others, and I'll absolutely go all out. And I know that Nick feels the same way. I think this is one of the best and most fascinating films in the entire series, partly because of what we've talked about, the fact that it's so well directed and Peter Hunt puts a real stamp on it and the actual filmmaking is phenomenal. But also because it is so subversive uh, in terms of what the Bond films have been so far. And from that, it derives a colossal dramatic power and an emotional impact that, that we don't really see again, I don't think. Um, just for a franchise film at this point in its run as well, remember Bond was the biggest film franchise of the 60s. This is the top 
as far as it can go. And to pull everything back from just how colossal You Only Live Twice was, and to go for a From Russia With Love style story and character first streamlined espionage movie, which also completely humanizes the character of Bond. He's not a superhero in this film. He's not someone who can suppress his emotions. He's a flesh and blood human being who, because of where this story takes him, achieves almost a tragic dimension at the end of it. I think that's such a risk that they took. And it didn't pay off for them, of course. They were then left with a film that wasn't as successful on their hands and they had to pay Connery to come back and rescue the series. So at the time, it almost sinks them. But now, of course, it's you know been totally reassessed. But I love it for that. I love that it takes such a colossal risk with where the series is. What did you guys think, like, looking returning to it? Yeah, I think I'd agree, Adam. Um, so looking back on when I used to, when I watched this as a child, also I used to watch a lot of the Bond films with my dad. Um, and even to this day, my dad still passionately hates Honor Majesties, and it's kind of difficult to see why. Because it's when I look back on it, I look back at it with quite a lot of fondness in a way. Because it's as you say, it was quite a brave step for them to take that decision that you know that um, Bond should become more of a vulnerable character because we've seen him as this sort of quite unflappable kind of character in the previous films whereas in this one obviously there is a lot more vulnerability to him and is it's kind of it shows up his weaknesses in a way which we don't really get again until quite a lot later on probably into the kind of Dalton or even Brosnan kind of era really so it's quite a it, again it was quite a brave step for them to do it and I think it was actually quite a pleasant experience to be able to go back to this and actually reaffirm the fact that it is quite it is one of the best of the group I wouldn't perhaps agree personally that it is the best of the whole lot i think that you have to look at this film possibly as a standalone one particularly when compared to the connery ones i'd still probably say that goldfinger of the whole group was probably the best of the lot but this is certainly has become much higher up on certainly on my list of of the films in the franchise and i think it probably would be now one that's you know that i would probably put into my top 10 of films of the bond films that i would watch again I like how you said the that it was in your top 10 Bond film. There's only 25 or 24 films. <laughs> is that really a compliment? Yeah, top 10 isn't a huge compliment. I think it's top five is, is when you're really, with the Bonds, you're in the top echelons. No, but we do like to quantify how, our bomb, how we like our Bond films. And I think, it, to be honest, before that, it was outside of the top 10. Nick and mine, would you kind of agree with that? It's a film that changes as you grow older and, and because it is a much more adult Bond film, it takes Bond much more seriously, but this is a film you grow to appreciate. Yeah, I agree. When like when I was a kid watching the this wasn't one of my top films, but it it, it is one of my top Bond films now. Even watching it again, it, it may be at the top. But I kind of understand people it's it's very divisive and i think that came back with skyfall i think it's it's like adam was saying it's quite it's it was made it was a directorial vision the this film he kind of peter hunt really took this he'd been the editor on uh, all the previous films and then uh the second unit director and he wanted to be the director on you only live twice and they didn't give it to him so when he finally got it he really put his stamp on us. He wanted back to basics. And the thing is, the, the things that I kind of like about it now, if you've grown older, is, is kind of the subversive elements. Uh, and I think also that the, the central thread through it is really the romantic storyline. And I think if you, don't, if you don't want that or you're not as interested in that, then 
the pacing seems very off because they dedicate a lot of the start of the film to that. And so it's, it seems quite slow. You're like, let's get to the base. But appreciating it as, as a film, you can, you can see that that's the main storyline and it works really well. And the ending is heartbreaking for that reason. Yeah, I've not, I think that's very well put. I haven't got much to add there. I think it's just a, a much more grown-up Bond film. Uh, and that's why I've appreciated it more and more. Uh, as I grow older and older, as uh, so yeah, I think as as a kid, you just want the gadgets and the explosions, whereas this one deals uh, a much more emotional, or strikes a much more emotional chord. I feel very good. Um, shall we talk about Gorgeous George Lazenby? That seems the next uh, natural place to go. What do we think of Gorgeous George? I wanted to bring this up actually because obviously I know a lot of sort of fans kind of criticise the way that, part of the way that he was cast and part of the way that he kind of delivers some of his lines. And admittedly, some of them are a little bit stilted. I mean, one of the, the most awkward ones is where he's in the office with Money Penny and he asks her to write a memo for him to resign. And it's just the way that it delivers that. It's just, it's very, very wooden. But I think overall, I actually thought about this. When you look at the very final scene, as we've mentioned already, and obviously when Tracy gets shot, I think it's the fact that you can't really put any of the other Bond actors in that scenario and it, it would have worked. See, Connery, it wouldn't have really worked in that scenario. I can't really think of anyone else that would have been able to to match that tenderness that obviously that Lazenby shows in that sequence. Um, so I think overall, I think Lazenby deserves more credit than he often gets, in all honesty. It's interesting to me, talking about other actors who could have done that, I would say in terms of Bond actors, Daniel Craig could very much, I think, have pulled off that or something similar. And a lot of the reassessment of this film has kind of tied up to when Daniel Craig took over the role. And again, with Casino Royale, you've completely stripped it back and taken a lot of the more excessive uh, hyperbolic Bond elements out of it to focus on character and story. I think Lazenby suffered certainly at the time as the only Bond you had to compare him to is Connery. And Lazenby doesn't have the charisma of Connery and he doesn't have the star power because, of course, it's his acting debut, effectively. He just doesn't have the experience as a screen actor. But yeah, I love his portrayal in this. And I think as we've now got him as one of six Bonds and you can compare him to Craig, you can compare him a little bit to Dalton as well in terms of bringing psychological realism to the character. I think he now comes into his own and you see him as the most vulnerable, the most human of all the Bond actors. And that last scene is the apotheosis of that. Apparently Peter Hunt rehearsed with him for the entire day from very early to shoot the scene at about five o'clock at night so that he was legitimately exhausted and emotionally drained. Uh, and then they took famously the second take because he summoned real tears on the first and it was almost a little bit too much. And uh, Hunt knew that in underplaying it and in him being much more reserved as he is in the film in his reaction, it would be even more devastating. Yeah, I really think that the idea that if Connery had been in this, it would have been the best film I, yeah, I just don't see him doing some of the scenes. I think also the fact that it's the same James Bond, but you can kind of, it's a new actor, so you get to see him in a different way. And I think after we'd seen the previous films, seeing Connery go, oh, I might settle down with Diana Rigg. It just, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to work. So I think, I think you're right. I think it was Phil said that some of the scenes and, you know, when James Bond meets Money Penny, it's it's a bit more wooden. But I think, like you have to give him credit for the action scenes. I think this film has got so many punch ups. It's got like 
the much more than normal James Bond. I think they were just taking advantage because Lazenby really looked like he could, you know, win in these fights and he put in a lot of effort. And famously, he actually punched one of the stuntmen in one of the screen tests. He, he actually punched him in the face. But yeah, I think they've taken advantage of what Lazenbury brings to the role. And it, it works in the, the arc where you can kind of believe that James Bond wants to settle down and that he's found his equal. And it's also these scenes where he's running away and he genuinely looks scared. And that wasn't, you can't even see, you could see at the script stage, Connery going, no, I don't want to look scared and be rescued. I think considering it's his first acting credit, I think Lazenby does an exceptional job, really. Um, and that's going into it after not watching it for many years. And I was kind of going into it thinking I don't like Lazenby. And then by the end, I was thinking, yeah, it, it was bloody good. Uh, yeah, I think I'd, I'd go along with the fact that he he does look genuinely scared. Actually, I was going to bring that up in the, the chase sequence. Uh, then I thought back to Sean Connery in Thunderball where he's surrounded by people going through that ridiculous carnival. He's been shot in the leg, but somehow you, he goes through it like, you know he's going to get out of it. He's not, he's not worried at all by this situation. But uh, Lazenby uh, really brings it back down to earth in a really realistic way. So uh, yeah, I really enjoyed Lazenby and uh, definitely ironic, really, because Connery, I believe, said that he would like to be involved in something like Honor Majesties because it's more similar to From Russia With Love, a more espionage, Cold War thriller. I do agree. And, and, and as we said last week, I just can't quite imagine Connery in this role. It just seems completely at odds with the way that he played Bond. And uh, Nick, you're absolutely right in terms of the physicality of Lazenby and those fights and the way that they're edited and the sound effects of them as well. I mean, we know that there are heightened sound effects in the fist fights before now. And Connery, of course, as a former boxer, can handle himself. But my word, they are such stunningly choreographed and really brutal bouts in this one. I mean, people go properly crashing through furniture. You know, people get punched in the face, not once or twice, but about five times, I think, the guy he takes out to go skiing down Pig's Gloria. There's a fair few hits. Um, I'm not sure I entirely find him wooden, incidentally, in the scenes with M and Moneypenny. On the contrary, I think because there's a greater focus on character, it also serves to deepen Bond's relationship with those characters as well. I was pleasantly surprised with M and Moneypenny and where they're taken in this. M is properly angry with Bond and disgruntled you know, and gives him very short shrift. And yet M is at his wedding and, and is very tender to Moneypenny when he gives her the hanky at the end of it. Uh, and I just like the idea that, you know, Bond and M are particularly fractious in this one. And of course, Moneypenny saves the day by changing his resignation to a leave of absence. So I did like that they were themselves as characters given more to do because we are more focused on a more human and emotional Bond in this one. Yeah, I was going to say, do we think that's related to the actors? Because... Like Bernard Lee and Lois Maxwell, there seems to be, a, even though M's character is frosty towards Bond in this film, I feel like there's a genuine warmth among those ally characters towards uh, Lazenby. And I didn't know whether that might be related to the fact that I think Connery was disgruntled with them, that they'd gone off and done spoof versions. I think there's one called From Hong Kong with Love, a French James Bond spoof version, which Connery wasn't happy that they'd gone and done in his tenure. So uh, yeah, I, I I agree with you, Adam. I think I quite enjoyed that those uh, those scenes with the uh, Emma Moneypenny. I think it's quite nice as well the fact that just going back to Lazenby as well, the fact that he brings quite a lot of charm to the role as well. Obviously, with Connery, he's a bit more gruff and a bit more kind of a grumpy old man towards the end of You Only Live Twice. So I think it it was always the right step to kind of 
to move away from that. And as you say, Martin, I think there was there was already kind of probably a dynamic between the actors that were playing Q, Money, Penny, and M. So it kind of it made sense for them to to bring in someone who was you know maybe hadn't obviously hadn't been in in the franchise before that was that was always going to kind of move it along. I think going back to Emma Moneypenny, part of the reason, aside from it's in the book, which they adapt very faithfully, is that there was a very conscious effort because it's Lazenby's debut and they didn't fully know how good or bad he was going to be in this. They do try and surround him with very good supporting actors who can kind of carry him through it, which, of course, leads us on very neatly to Dame Diana Rigg, who is certainly, I think, still the highest caliber and and most renowned and successful dramatic actress ever to play a Bond woman discounting Dame Judi Dench, if you count her as M. What do we reckon? I mean, I know, Phil, you are obviously a huge Diana Rigg fan. Did you enjoy seeing her again in this? Yes, it was really good to see the film again. Um, And obviously, we have mentioned before in previous episodes, Diana Rigg's role and obviously my enjoyment of it. I just think that when you could, particularly when you compare it again back to the old, the former films with Connery's era when it's obviously you know the different bongos we get this is kind of, again this is kind of a transition away because as nick's already mentioned Teresa can sort of match bond in terms of his own actions so she's sort of you know she, her father's within the criminal areas and you know it's the fact that she doesn't need to be you know told what to do or anything like that but she does care a great deal for bond you know obviously we see that coming into although she's frosty in the early stages we do see towards the end they do generate that genuine connection but i think diana rigg in terms of an actor in this film i think she she's probably the best of the lot to be honest i mean in terms of you know how she portrays tracy and the fact that she's very again she's very much independent she's very much you know able to look after herself as well so she's not kind of necessarily reliant on Bond to save her from dangerous situations. She is, in some ways, she's very similar to Pussy Galore in the fact that she's got her own vision for the future and she knows what she wants to do. Yeah, I think Diana Riggs, she's definitely one of the best Bond women. She just, she is his equal in this film and in in some ways superior. Like she saves them at least once, perhaps twice. Again, like with Lazenby, they took her experience from the Avengers things, her, her fight skills, and made her character like able to defend herself. She's clearly very good at driving, which is probably why Phil's in love with her. But uh, yeah, her, her fight when the helicopters attack the base as well, she, she holds her own. And the film also enables her to win the fight before Bond arrives. I think as well they give her... Uh, you know kind of backstory by telling the story of her parents and her mother was an independent woman who was looking for bandits in Corsica I think the the line is and so it's kind of this isn't just she's from a criminal family she's kind of always independent and something I especially like is that at the wedding she references that she'll follow James just as she followed her father's orders or she'll continue to be her own woman she's just she's found she's found the man she wants to spend her life with yeah I think her acting was top-notch in this film along with her driving abilities Phil it would be interesting we said how much we enjoy Lazenby's performance but I think with a lesser actor than Diana Rigg Lazenby might not have looked as good in this film. I think it needed the, the two of them uh, as a twosome to, uh, to work in the, uh, in the film. So yeah, I really enjoyed uh, Diana Rigg's performance. 
I agree with everything everyone said. Um, the fact that she's not like Domino or even Tatiana, who, who saves Bond, but sort of motivated in the spur of the moment by vengeance. She's made a decision to go and hang out in the village so that she's there in case he needs her. You know, she's the one who drives the getaway car. And then in the final sequence, she takes the initiative to seduce and flirt with Blofeld to distract him just long enough to give the three helicopters time to land. Do you think it would be funnier if uh, if Tracy was Blofeld's daughter? Because technically Draco is part of his criminal organisation. He thinks that he's got the biggest organisation, but Bond reminds him about Spectre. Yeah, you're going a bit Star Wars talking about Tracy as being Blofeld's daughter, aren't you? The, the granddaughter of the evil emperor. I mean, they go that way, don't they? In terms of Blofeld turns out to be Bond's stepbrother or, or whatever it is, Inspector, uh, by way of Austin Powers in Goldmember. <laughs> I just think there'd be more of a moral dilemma, wouldn't there, if he's really fallen in love with Tracy, but then the father-in-law is Blofeld. I mean, Telly Savalas being an actor of Greek origin, it certainly puts a little Oedipal slant on that flirting scene between uh, him and Diana Rigg, doesn't it? I think it's interesting as well in the, the, that, that flirting scene. They, they make Diana Rigg, like they hired another writer to write dialogue for her, Simon Raven, to kind of make her a more sophisticated character in terms of Bond isn't going to find out later that he's too snobby for her, that he's, you know, again, that she is his equal. So I thought that that was a clever, clever move. I once uh, quoted some poetry on a date, didn't get a second date. So it went about as well as the, <laughs> the scene with... What, yeah, what, well, what poem? What poem did you quote there, Martin? Uh, no comment. You didn't go for Don John by Lord Byron, did you? Because I can see how that wouldn't get you a certain date. That's pretty forward. Was it the Miller's Tale from the Canterbury Tales? I wish I hadn't mentioned this now. Mine, you're going to have to tell us what poem this was. We're, we're just going to... This is going to be going on week on week, I promise you, unless you reveal it. Or let's open this up to Twitter. Let's try and guess what was Martin's poem. And then, you, I don't know, will they win a prize if they get it right, Martin? No, let's not do that. I think it was some... <laughs> I can't remember. I only know a few poems anyway. It, it might have been Coleridge. Oh, you should be able to remember it pretty easily then. <laughs> it was Coleridge, I think. Coleridge? What? Did you just start the rhyme of the ancient mariner? You did get a second <laughs> The English A level. Two yeah. hours later, saying it. <laughs> um, steering us back to the flirting scene and also to the idea of this film cast the right actors in the right roles for the right story. Telly Savalas as Blofeld. I cannot see Donald Pleasance as Blofeld in this film at all. Just in terms of the, the increased physical demands on Blofeld, who is part of the chase sequences, is skiing down the mountain. But also in terms of those flirting sequences with Tracy, you need what Telly Savalas brings to the role in this, that sense of a charming, arrogant snob who's an intellectual, certainly he's a criminal mastermind, but also fancies himself an artistic uh, intellectual as well. Uh, what do you guys think about good old Telly? Who loves your baby? Yeah, I mean, I'd agree to an extent. I think he does bring a lot more charm to the role. I mean, there was a sequence when he's skiing down, obviously when you get the close-up of him skiing, where I just think, and Bond's being chased by Kojak. And that's all. that was part, that was part of the reason why, I, you know, there are elements that I couldn't quite take seriously. But no, I do agree. I, th I don't think Donald Pleasance could have made it work in that sense. But there are a few minor elements where it's it does feel a little bit camp in terms of how he delivers some of the lines 
Tully Savalas is. But I mean, it's it's that's not to take anything away from the overall performance. I think he he does very well as a Bond villain. This kind of does raise a few minor issues with the fact that obviously in You Only Live Twice, Blofeld meets Bond, and yet in this film he doesn't recognise him at all as Hilary Bray. So it's kind of there is a slight awkwardness in that in the fact that the audience has to kind of believe that they've never met, even though two years earlier they already had in that different well, well that's well phil phil that's only a continuity error if you don't subscribe to my view my theory of the many blowfelds which is that there is only one true blowfeld and that is the blowfeld of from russia with love and thunderball who after that film is essentially sending deco blowfelds to run his operations for him so it's not the same blowfeld you only live twice was just the donald pleasant's blowfeld impersonator this is just the telly savalas blowfeld impersonator and so he hasn't, of course, met James Bond, if you run with that theory. My theory is that the cat is actually Blofeld. Uh, he's, the cat is the criminal mastermind, and the humans are just henchmen. Uh, yeah, the cat, the cat is the criminal mastermind. He just gets a new body every time uh, his human host is disintegrated. That explains why the cat's going mental and you only live twice as well. I was thinking, why? <laughs> I built this base, now it's been destroyed. Well, the, apparently... Does, I, don't, I was only reading up on this last week. Apparently, because of that explosion, the cat that they used, the guy that owned it tried to sue the producers because it never worked on a TV set again. It was the George Lazenby of cats. We're going down a very niche rabbit hole. Yeah, what, we're, we're talking about Blofeld, are we? I can't remember. Yeah, Blofeld. Telly Savalas' yeah, Blofeld, yeah, yeah. I believe, yeah. Um, yeah, I think his performance... Uh, I'm going to stay on the Donald Pleasance Ben wagon. I think he would have been a good Blofeld because even Telly Savalas looks a bit ridiculous on that bobsleigh. So I think they would have had to, <laughs> they'd have had to adjust the scenes a little bit for Donald, given he couldn't have been, it would be too short to have been stuck in that tree as they go down. But uh, yeah, I think I'm on Pleasant's side here. Uh, interestingly, the, uh, the poll that we ran on Instagram from, our, from last week's discussion, when we, there was some disagreement, Adam, you said he was better as an unseen character me and Phil thought that it was better to be seen. And our audience is split 50-50, so you can see why we had that disagreement. There is In the Bond community, they're not sure as well. I'll take that as a win, because I think I was coming from a fairly unpopular point of view there. Yeah, I think Telly Savalas, he's kind of right for this film. But yeah, you do have to ignore the, the continuity. And Pleasant's portrayal is definitely the iconic one. This is, this is less iconic. This is more... Blofeld is the action man. He's seemingly almost as capable as Bond in fights and skiing and so forth. As we've mentioned the bobsleigh, shall we talk a little bit about the ski action sequences of the general snow action sequences? Because much like from Russia With Love, the film back ends a lot of its action sequences. They pretty much all come thick and fast bar the occasional fist fight in the last half an hour or so of the film. Uh, and I think there's a real sense again of them trying to find a completely different scenario and style of action sequence in this, of course. We had Underwater in Thunderball. We had Ariel, in a sense, in You Only Live Twice with Little Nelly and, of course, mass action. This is the first time we go on the ice and also the first time that we see a post-bullet car chase. 
in a Bond film. What did we think of the, both of those sequences? So yeah, the action sequences in, in, this, in this film are incredible to this day. Uh, I, I think some people get, can get hung up on the kind of back projection shot close-ups of people but the actual filming of the skiing, for instance, they, they got uh, Willie Bogner, who two years earlier, he'd made a documentary and developed uh, ways for filming while skiing. And he was actually skiing backwards while holding a camera, filming a lot of the, the, the shots. And he used local skiers rather than stuntmen for a lot of the skiing. And so that to this day it's some incredible shots when they're going between the trees and and so forth in in terms of the car the car chase again yeah it, it was just apparently i think it was peter hunt's spur of the moments he went i think it was in switzerland that they had uh, stunt drivers and as a demo they kind of did a race like this on ice and everything and so they just constructed this scene and the, that wasn't that was a field, and they froze it for the film, and we're 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 doing the race on that. I think it's it's really exciting, as you say, bullet. It kind of up the up the game. Action films are catching up with Bond, so it it really uh, had to had to go full throttle. Uh, I th- I'd agree totally, Nick. I think that. It's also one of those cases where it kind of proves that you don't need a lot of gadget-laden vehicles to be able to make a chase exciting. You know, also we saw in Goldfinger the fact that it was very much reliant on the gadgets that Bond had to 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 hand and that he could use at the time. But in this, there's no no gadgets or anything at all. You know, they haven't even got tracing Bond or even have a, a gun to shoot at um, a Bond or the henchman. So it's it's quite uh, interesting that it's it's the way that the the sequence is shot that makes it exciting so it kind of moves it on in that sense and it is obviously there is an element of it's born in reality and the fact that ice racing is quite popular in sort of france and switzerland and those sort of countries um so it's quite a popular sport in itself so it's quite a you know a believable scenario in a sense yeah i think overall i think in the whole film we get lots of action and actually i'm really impressed with the amount of sports they managed to cram into the film as well what do we have we have bullfighting bobsleigh, car race. I'm sure there's a couple of others as well. Oh yeah, it's a veritable Winter Olympics in its own right, this film. With Bond, I think, winning gold medals in most, if not all, of the events. Except bullfighting. He doesn't really uh, go in for bullfighting very much. Uh, and John Barry's score, of course, under underpinning or underscoring, I should say, all of these action sequences. I think this is probably his best score. I think there's such a brilliant contrast with the main theme and how urgent and dynamic it is. And he's talked a little bit about using different instruments and more electronic instruments to heighten even that sense of exciting Bondian music, uh, going beyond even what he's done in the previous films. But also just how lush and heartbreaking and tender the romantic themes are. The way that those strings underscore the scene in the barn when he proposes to Tracy. I always get goosebumps during that scene. And part of it is, is, of course, how dramatically monumental and powerful that moment is. And of course, we return to that at the very end of the film. Um, but yeah, just how brilliantly contrasting those soft and hard themes are. In yeah, the, the introduction of the Bond theme was that this was the, the last use of the original recording of the Bond theme in the series uh, at that base. But yeah, no, I think... It was interesting that they went for an instrumental song, obviously, after the, the hits. 
of say Goldfinger. But as they say, the title of the film didn't really lend itself to, to lyrics, which they got over later for other films, which didn't have to feature the, the title and the lyrics, but uh, thankfully not. But it still has possibly the best Bond song with the uh, We Have All the Time in the World. On the ending very quickly, did you guys cry? Because I cry every single time I get to the end of this film. I just think it's, it's so powerful and so brilliantly handled. I know we've talked about it already, but specifically, I tear up every time, and I just wondered if I were alone or not. I don't quite get to crying, but yeah, I, I understand what you mean, Adam. It's just that moment where you just where everything kind of, and it comes out of nowhere as well, almost because obviously you've got this moment of, of momentous joy. Obviously, Bong gets married, and you know, and there's there's a great deal of tenderness, as we've already mentioned. You know, the fact that Q and M and Money Penny they're kind of like a, their own little family that have come together, and they've been through all these adventures. You, you feel like it's this is like Bond's finally got his happy ending, and also you feel that you know things are finally going to start to to get easy for him. You know he's had these loss losses in the past, and also the one thing I wanted to mention in the cars section as well is the fact that it's actually great casting in terms of the cars because a lot of people probably w won't know, but the car that Blofeld drives is a Mercedes 600 Grosser. And what that was was kind of the dictator's car of choice for that era. So it was kind of if you were a dictator in the world, you had a Mercedes 600. So it's kind of it's it's very much a villainous car as well. So it kind of all of that casting is brilliant in that final setup. I was about to make fun of you for looking at the the villain's car even in that scene, but that is quite a good trivia point. So I'll let you off there. Yeah, I think the the ending. Yeah, I always get a lump in the throat. I think it's I think it's the way it kind of goes. It goes quiet. I can imagine the first time watching it, you're kind of oh, we're gonna have another car chase, and you're getting ready for that. You think a theme's gonna come on, or it's just gonna end with him racing after or something. But he gets in the car ready, and that's what Bond's ready to do as well. But then he realizes what has happened, and that changes it. He's He's not on his mission. This is too big. This is, you know, he's just going to stop. He's going to let Blofeld essentially get away right now because this is more important. I always feel very hollow watching that scene as well. It leaves a real hollow sense. And it's one of those, for me, weird examples, again, of Bond being strangely in sync with what's also happening at the time. It feels like the end of an era, and this is 1969. The Beatles are splitting up. Midnight Cowboy and Easy Rider have come out, and so American cinema is entering a silver age and becoming more adult. But you just get a sense from it that the 60s is over, and you know that period of British dominance almost is over, and it's weirdly looking back contextually reflected in just how much of a death knell rings in that last scene. Yeah, I agree. It's, it does feel like the end of an era, and as you say, there were quite a few films that seemed to be in the air in that year, which which had sad or very sad endings. But yeah, it's a, it almost feels like the last Bond, Bond film. I think when people parody Bond films, they go back to the 60s ones. And I think the, the Bond films kind of like this, they're certainly good ones and be talking about them, but it, they became more latched onto other genres. They kind of started adapting or the Bond film as a genre in itself was very much the 60s ones. Yeah, Bond is newly widowed, but the, the Beatles are broken up, so he's got that's good and bad news. 
Oh, yeah, of course, he hates the Beatles. That will cheer him up. That'll cheer him up enormously. I was going to say every cloud. And I was just going to add as well, obviously, we've got the um, kind of a before they were famous role with Joanna Lumley, who um, who appears in the uh, the ski resort as well, and who went on to be in the, I think, was it the New Avengers that she appeared in with Patrick? Uh, I can't remember his surname, but obviously went in on Patrick to... McNee, yeah. Who was also in a bomb film. Yeah, he's Godfrey Tibbet in uh, A View to a Kill. Joanna Lumley also goes on to star, star in uh, The Trail of the Pink Panther with Burt Kwok. You're not thinking that. I sure am, boy. Ever heard of Evil Knievel? Neither have I, actually. Okay, so we'll move on to our next segment, which is a look at the cars and gadgets. Uh, what do you have for us this week, Phil? Yes, thank you very much, Martin. So this week, um, obviously, as we've already mentioned, it goes quite a lot back to basics with um, kind of the cars and gadgets that we see in the film. Obviously, in the Connor era, we had a, quite a mix of different cars and obviously a, a mix of different gadgets. In this one, though, we're very much back to the basics, probably partly due to budget and partly due to the um, the source material. Obviously, they want to keep quite close to the book. But what a lot of people forget is the fact that the Aston Martin DBS that Bond drives throughout the film. When you look at it commercially, it was actually hugely important to Aston Martin as a company because we're only a couple of years away from the oil crisis that crippled a lot of nations um, and nearly brought a lot of car manufacturers to the brink, not just Aston Martin, but, you know, Ferrari, Porsche, Lamborghini. So the DBS almost saved Aston Martin in terms of its sales. It was quite popular in the US markets. And one of the amazing points about the um, Aston Martin DBS is that it also um, found fame in the Persuaders, the Roger Moore, Tony Curtis um, series, which was released just a few years later um, and just prior to Roger Moore getting his own role as Bond. And of course, Teresa's car, the Mercury um, Cougar. We don't really see any gadgets from either of them. Obviously, it's again, kind of Going back to basics, Bond has just gone back to, you know, quite a basic setup. And also, it's interesting to note that with Teresa's Mercury, that pretty much was kind of, in terms of performance figures, pretty much similar to the Aston Martin. So they both had about 280 brake horsepower. They were very much cars of the moment and very popular. The only real gadget that we see that's actually used by Bond is also the um, the enormous kind of photo scanning unit that gets winched up to the offices when the um, when the villain is on his lunch break. So obviously uh, Bond has to work out the code for the safe, which seems like it takes it. Well, obviously we see it's only got the hour, but it seems to take far longer than that. It seems to be almost like it's he's got enough time to read the Playboy magazine. It's like how much time do you have for that safe to unlock? It's sort of. By that point, my patience sort of ran out completely. So it's the fact that you can just, you know, just sit there. And I think we're in a very different time in the 60s. People clearly had a lot more time to spare. When you say uh, reads the Playboy magazine in uh, the lawyer's office, I imagine we're using the word reads very loosely. Is the reason it's in it is because Fleming's Bond stories were in serialised in Playboy, weren't they? So he's reading himself. Yeah, On Her Majesty's was originally serialised in Playboy in 1963, yeah. But it's the wrong issue. Oh, maybe he's trying to work out what happens then and what he's going to do next, get some insider information. I love how you know that's the wrong issue, Nick. No comment. 
Why don't you acquaint yourself with manuals? You'll be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. Just took a few seconds, Q. Okay, and our next segment, uh, we've spoken a little bit about the books already and how similar this film is, uh, but what details do we have uh, by the book 007? Over to you, Adam. So on Her Majesty's Secret Service, the novel, I don't have a huge amount to say on this one this week because as we've alluded to, this is an incredibly faithful adaptation of the book, if not the most faithful adaptation of all of the Bond novels. Indeed, Peter Hunt, the director, it said, had an annotated copy of the novel on the set with him every day to help him direct. That's how closely they're following it. So as we talked last week, this is in fact the second in the novel's Blofeld trilogy, starting with Thunderball and going on to You Only Live Twice, which is reconfigured in the books as a revenge mission. And it does mean we get a couple of interesting tweaks from the plotline for the film. In the book, Bond is actually fed up with Operation Bedlam. He hasn't met Blofeld yet and is doubting the very existence of the mastermind uh, who stole the two atomic bombs in Thunderball. And so he's actually threatening to resign because M won't remove him from Operation Bedlam rather than actually removing him. We've talked a little bit about the continuity error of the fact that in the books, of course, it's fine for Bond to meet Blofeld as Hillary Bray because they haven't met yet in the films they have. There was initially in the screenplay the introduction of a scene where Bond has plastic surgery, which explains the change of appearance in actor, which of course would have also covered the fact that Blofeld doesn't recognise him. Not uh, That was not included in the final film and it's not in the book either. But that's a little way they tried to get around that. It's also much more specific in the novel that Blofeld's scheme here is a personal revenge against the UK, whose intelligence services crippled his operation in Thunderball because the UK at this time, 1963, was hugely dependent on its agricultural economy post-World War II. And so the idea that he can wipe out whole strains of cereal and livestock uh, had much greater meaning and much greater danger and power when it was featured in the novel. Now, this is written during the filming of Dr. No, and Fleming wasn't particularly pleased with what he was seeing while it was being filmed down the road. He's, of course, writing this in Kingston, Jamaica, up to his golden eye, estate. And so the fact that this is a much more stripped back, character-driven, emotional bond is a deliberate choice on Fleming's part. This isn't just a departure for the films. This is a departure for where the books were going. Uh, and he actually visits in the book the, the grave of Vesper Lind, who in the novels, of course, at the end of Casino Royale was his first plays I love, who he doesn't feel quite as strongly for, it turns out. But we see that emotional side of bond expressed in that scene. Uh, and this actually leads Fleming to get his best reviews at the time from critics. The story and the emotion are highly praised by them. The avalanche sequence and the idea of losing your true love in, a, in an actual accident, both are taken from Fleming's actual life, it's felt. He did himself have to outrun an avalanche. It was, I think, the closest to death, perhaps, that he's ever been. And during the war, he had a lover who was killed in an air raid and who, it's felt, was the love of his life and whose death hit him incredibly sorely. Yeah, as you say, uh, Peter Hunt, he was really enthusiastic to, to keep it along the, uh, the novel and he really stripped it back. And I did hear of early drafts of the screenplay which had introduced other elements where obviously Richard Maybaum was obsessed with trying to involve animals in the film. And uh, the scene where Bond is put in the cable car room was actually in one of the early scripts featured him put in a lab with a monkey. Then he has to teach the monkey how to uh, pull some levers to escape. 
and then apparently Bond at the end went back to save the monkey before the uh, base exploded. But this was obviously once Peter Hunt came in, this was this was gone. It brings us nicely actually to my segment, which is that's not okay anymore. So uh, in this segment this week, I was actually going to take a look at some areas of uh, animal cruelty that I'd missed in previous films that perhaps I should have mentioned. So of course, in this film, we get the bullfighting. I guess a more modern film might not have a a birthday party. Although I guess if if it's a villain, we might still have a villain's birthday party at a bullfight. And in the previous films, the ones that I've missed, so of course, Thunderball, all of those underwater scenes, those long underwater scenes, obviously you can't train a shark to act. So when they're being caught up in all the netting, you can see that some of them are in genuine distress. Um, And I think one of them is even harpooned at one point, and it's not very clear whether that's an accident or whether the actor is fearing for his life. Uh, But either way, it's not a a great thing uh, to have, and they keep it in the film. And uh, as we've mentioned, the, uh, the real identity of Blofeld is the cat. A cat shouldn't really be so close to all of the explosions that are happening on set. Uh, and you see it again when Blofeld decides to kill Asato, and then the cat's scared by the gunshot. Of course, Blofeld should kill Bond at that time, but decides to walk through to the monorail first, and then that's the chance for Bond to escape. But uh, yeah, those are a couple of uh, areas of uh, animal uh, cruelty that perhaps we wouldn't see uh, in a modern Bond film. Um, but apart from that, I think non-PC areas, we might mention Draco as the uh, the main area of uh, uncomfortable scenes. Of course, offering his daughter to Bond for a million pounds isn't great. And of course, punching her in the face is not, <laughs> not a great move either. What did we think about that? Yes, I mean, the fact that Bond slaps Tracy as well early on, it's just like, just gives her a big smack around the mouth. To try and it's just, yeah, it's... Again, there there are a few elements that haven't aged well. Let's say it's um, yeah, probably punching your daughter in the face isn't isn't advised as top parenting. I, I don't think. Well, at least Bond's excuse is he thinks at that point she's tried to have him killed with the thug in her room waiting for him and all the rest of it. I guess that's part of Draco's character in it. He's a an overbearing, overprotective father, and b he's one of Europe's leading criminals. So I think that probably explains why he's uh you know doing things like punching her in the face to get her on the chopper saying things like what she needs is a man to dominate her yeah i find the yeah the draco scenes are certainly the most problematic like him actually punching his daughter to put her on a helicopter just i don't know when that ever looked good but (laughs) it looks terrible now um yeah i think what do we think of the angels of death like how they're treated I think the fact that it's all young, uh, very attractive ladies and the fact that he's brainwashing them in order to be able to listen to his voice and carry out his plan, there's almost a suggestion that, oh, I would need impressionable young women in order to uh, instruct this will for me. So there's a little bit of a sexist bent to that, I guess, as well. Yeah, you'd presume that allergies would affect middle-aged men more. So we, could, we should have had Keith from Morecambe up in the <laughs> up in Miss Gloria. And I think still get Joanna Lumley to play Keith from Morecambe because she's a very talented, versatile actress and I, I don't think that would have been beyond her, to be honest. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Okay, so uh, shall we move on to our final segment? It's over to Phil. You have the honours for this week's quiz, Phil. So more competition here, three of us. 
Yes, thank you very much, Martin. Um, similar to last week, it's going to be another sudden death penalty style question and answer. Uh, and then if we are tied, we'll go to a tiebreaker at the very end. So it's the best of three for each person. So this week, it's whose line is it anyway? So all you have to do is name either the character or the actor that said this line, and I will give you the three. So there's no multiple choice. It's just all you have to do is tell me who's who said it. So we'll go Adam, Martin, and then Nick, if that's okay. So Adam, for your very first one, are you looking for shells too? That would be Honey Rider, I presume, in uh, Doctor No. Correct. Uh, Martin, um, your first one, he had a lot of gut. That's George Lazenby, James Bond. Correct. Um, and Nick, for your first one, I never joke about my work, 007. That, that is, that's Q. Yep, correct. So back to Adam for your second one. So the password chosen for the mission is I love you. Say it back to me so I can be sure you've got it. Uh, that'll be Miss Moneypenny in You Only Live Twice. Correct. Okay, Martin, your second one. You are just a stupid policeman whose luck has run out. That's Dr. No. Correct. Nick, your second one is I like people who are friends of people. Not sure this one, to be honest. Uh, Felix Leiter? It's not. It was Quarrel from Dr. No. I feel, this is why I fear mm. I may have made elements too easy and elements too hard, so I do apologise if they are a bit too advanced. I'd have, I'd have, uh, I'd have got that that was Quarrel. <laughs> okay, and so back to Adam for your final question. Watch me so, now get this one wrong. Well, it would have nearly been a really challenging one because I almost accidentally put one from a film that we haven't actually watched together yet. So we'll, uh, that could have been a disaster. But no, I, I've, uh, I've picked quite an easy one, to be honest. In Japan, men come first, women come second. That will be Tetsuro Tambo, Tiger Tanaka. Correct. So that's three out of three for Adam. And Martin, your final one. So who are you going to ask? Largo? Very uneven questioning here, Phil. <laughs> Taneko was so easy. Yeah, I feel like I've done quite well out of this. Thanks, yeah, Phil. I've, I've, pro I've probably been too nice to Adam, yeah. So, so Can I have the line again, Phil, what is it? Yeah, so I'll try and do a bit more emphasis here. So who are you going to ask, Largo? No, I don't know. I'm going to have to guess uh, Fiona Volpe. No, I'm afraid it was Felix Leiter. I, I think it, I think it might, yeah, I thought it was Felix Leiter, your favourite Rip Van Nutter, Phil. <laughs> And Nick, your final one. So I've taught you to love chickens, to love their flesh, their voice. That is Blofeld, Talia Savalas. Yep, correct. So overall, Adam, with three out of three, he does win that one. So you get to pick this week's song choice. Well, there is only one song choice this week, isn't there? The only UK number one hit to be sung by a Blofeld. Let's go for Telly Savalas and If. Okay, so thanks everyone for listening. That was uh, episode six on Her Majesty's Secret Service. So, of course, Roger Moore's Cubbyhole will be back next week with episode number seven, where we'll take a look at a very different film, Diamonds Are Forever and the return of Sir Sean Connery. So uh, I think that's about it. You can feel free to go over to the social media accounts that we have. Uh, give us a follow and like on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So uh, I think that was it. So it's a goodbye from me, Martin. Uh, it's a goodbye from me, Phil. And it's goodbye from me, Adam. And me, Nick. If a picture 
paints a thousand words, then why can't I paint you? The words will never show the you I've come to know. And if a face could launch a thousand ships, then where am I to go? There's no one home but you. You're all that's left me to. And when, my love, for life is running dry, you come, you come and pour yourself on me. If a man could be two places at one time, well, I'd be with you tomorrow and today beside you.